The No Sleep Podcast presents Suddenly Shocking, Volume 13. A collection of short, sudden stories with lots of twists and turns. These furiously fast tales are postcard length, and they can take you on long journeys before even leaving the station. So settle in and join us as we serve up these bite-sized stories dripping with dark and foreboding horror. Thirty-one by Sean Yates In the morning there's to be a hanging. Come evening they'll put him in the ground. In the town the church bells clanging. Once I'm gone, the children won't be found. in Games by Tor Anders Alvin A stone's throw away from our property, there was a deep and dark and lovely forest, a place for adventures. Lydia and I would escape to this fantastical world whenever we could, usually to get away from our parents, who weren't very good people. We'd hide in the dense undergrowth when Father came calling, but eventually he'd find us and punish us for disobeying him. This day he was in a particularly bad mood. Lydia ran away first thing after school, with me in close pursuit. She was two years older than me, so I'd usually trail behind, but she would always stop and wait for me after a little while. We played for hours, our usual games, and a few new ones we'd come up with just to pass the slow hours until dusk. I can do way more than you. I'm older and stronger. Nuh-uh. I can do a hundred at least. No way. Lydia poked me in the shoulder. And even so, I can do twice that. Easy. Oh, yeah? Well, I can do a thousand. Two thousand, with my eyes closed. Ten thousand. I poked her right back. With one hand and my eyes closed. This went on for a while. We were always competing, bickering, but in a friendly, sibling rivalry kind of way. Lydia would usually win. She was older and stronger after all. We were too preoccupied with bragging and gloating and teasing to notice a movement in the bushes, the gentle rustling of the ferns, the lurking shadow in the distance. 300,000. No way you can beat that. Can't you? Nuh-uh. You're too small and weak, Melinda. She started tickling me, knowing full well that was my one great weakness. We laughed and rolled around in the tall grass, watching the sun slowly setting as we did. 
A dry twig snapped just down the hill, the sound reaching us just a little too late. So there you naughty girls are. Our mother came rushing out of the bushes. I sent your father out to find you hours ago. Where is he? Lydia shielded me behind her, like the perfect protective big sister she was. He's right here. Lydia smiled and pointed behind us. He's been here a while. What do you mean? A horrifying scream echoed through the vast woods. The blood-curdling sound heard for miles. Our mother fell to her knees, wailing, her face buried in her hands, her uncontrollable, pathetic sobs coming in erratic waves. While I'm not sure we ever got to 300,000 staffs, one thing remained certain. There wasn't much left of his body for us to stab anymore. Lydia smiled at me and waved the knife teasingly. Wanna go again? I bet I can do it faster this time. Nuh-uh. I'm gonna beat you this time. We giggled <laughs> and held hands as we approached our mother. Clown in the Woods by Neela Bright. Yada Yada hesitated and listened. Steps from the Day Glow playground, the giggles of children. The women on the other side were setting up the cake that cost more than they would pay him. Sweat soaked into Yada Yada's red nose, and he dreamed of ripping it off and stomping away in his oversized clown shoes. There, where the grill flicked flames like the pits of hell, the women in Chu's shoes were judging if the pittance they paid him was worth it. The leaves of the woods whispered of hidden secret things and promises. A darting motion there, the soft laughter of a little girl. A pink blur in the corner of his eye and then gone. The branches rustled. He edged closer, wondering about poison ivy. Layered with a hint of a pout, the sweet voice called again. You're my clown. Come play. Please. He dove into the world of green light, rustling and shadows. Only a dozen clumping, crunching, stumbling steps, and the women were out of sight. The yips and calls of the children swirled about him. Flashes of pink, purple, and blue flitted in and out of view. Then a flash of something brighter, reflecting sunlight. Yada Yada turned around to see more silver flashes in the hands of sharply grinning children erupting from the verdant cloak. They were on him before he could scream. The weight of one, two... And three. He stood, 
but in the blink of an eye, it was all of the children pulling him down and holding him under with soft hands as they finished their game. My son asked me to check the closet for monsters. I didn't need to. By F. F. I recently went through a pretty nasty divorce, but I got the only thing that mattered out of it. Full custody of my four-year-old son. Lost nearly everything else in the process, so we had to relocate to a new house with barely any luggage or furniture. Truly a fresh new start. I'd heard him call for me during our first night at our new home. It was a little after midnight, I think. I went to check on him to see what was wrong and sat by his bedside. He was wide awake and asked me to check the closet for monsters, which wasn't surprising given the circumstances. He's still just a little kid, and without even taking into account all the crap he's been put through thanks to my shitty marriage, moving into an unfamiliar, barely furnished home must have been a lot to take in for someone his age. And you know how they say that your brain always stays half awake when you're sleeping in a new environment, right? That was all pretty much what went through my mind in a flash as soon as my son spoke. It was no big deal. It was all normal, I thought. But something else almost immediately clicked inside my brain before I even got to look at where my son had pointed to while he made his innocent request. Something was wrong. I turned my head and looked. It took everything I had in me not to give into fear and terror, all for the sake of my son. When you become a parent, you have to protect your children no matter what, always putting yourself in harm's way if necessary and spare them any and all kinds of things that might hurt them. That's why I didn't freak out. I couldn't. Not when we had barely just started our new life. I had to protect him. And at that point in time, as I sat on his bed, I only knew one thing. We had to leave the room. We had to leave the house immediately. All right, champ. Of course. Then I made a request of my own as I lowered my voice and got closer to him. Hey, how about you step outside for a minute? If there's a monster in there, I'll have to kick its butt all over your room. Okay. (laughs) I made sure I put some extra emphasis on the word but because it was something that always cracks him up when I say it. Fortunately, he got stuck on that and not the fact that I was indirectly admitting to the possibility of there actually being a monster. As soon as he left the room, my mind raced as it started to put together the best and most efficient route to take him out of the house while picking up my car keys and phone on our way out. 
and I heard the closet door slowly creaking open behind me, I knew it was time to go. I jumped off the bed, exiting the room and grabbed my son. We were out of the door and inside of the car and moving in under a minute. I told him I couldn't sleep, so we were going out for some ice cream to celebrate. He was a little taken aback. Celebrate what? Just us two together. I love you, buddy. It was by no means a lie, but I just had to make sure that he was all right and he wouldn't think of anything else as we literally fled from our new home. As I mentioned earlier, the house was a new environment for the two of us. I'd been there a couple of times before, cleaned it all up by myself and assembled what little furniture we had. So I knew for a fact what belonged where and what didn't. And I know his room didn't have a closet. Family Portrait by Mata Haggis Burridge. My kid brought me a picture and pointed to where she'd drawn herself. There were two adults lying on the ground beside her, covered in what looked like blood. What happened to them? The last ones were no good. Then she skipped back to her crayons. She's not adopted and never explained what she meant. These days, when we buy her a new set of crayons, I hide all the red ones. Headcount by Travis Vingroff. So I was particularly good at hide-and-seek. I was small, I was the fastest runner among my friends, and I was fairly patient for a kid my age. We lived in an isolated neighborhood where everyone knew each other. We agreed to stay near my house for the rounds that ensued, and the night went pretty normal from there. It was my house, so I was the seeker. Then I hid. Then I was the co-seeker. Then I hid. Then I was the co-seeker again, then I hid. On my next turn hiding, I'd remembered a bushy tree in the backyard that I thought would be perfect. Back there, there were no lights, and it was much easier to hide if you knew where the fire ant piles were and you could avoid them. Due to the sand spurs, the sharp pokey seeds that felt like stepping on thumbtacks, most of us pretty much avoided going anywhere near the creek and my spot was just before the spurs started. Florida, am I right? I had a slight fear of the dark at that time, so I was relieved to find that I wasn't alone when I got there. I could hear one of my friends beside me, breathing and quietly chuckling with me as we sat and listened to our friends get caught, one by one. Kate, one of the taller kids, was the seeker 
and she quickly found my brother. The two of them continued until they found the boy from three blocks away. There was a tag element to the game, because I remember seeing them chase Kate's brother, who ran within 20 feet of where my accomplice and I were hidden before passing beyond vision to the far side of the house. More time passed, and they caught the boy from two houses down. The Seekers, now numerous, grew bold and began to call out my name directly and expand their search in a more coordinated effort. Minutes passed in silence, and I felt confident that they'd given up and maybe gone home. We'd won, and that never happened. I don't know what possessed me in that moment, but something seemed off. Things felt sort of surreal, and my brain switched to fight-or-flight mode. I started a mental headcount. Myself, my brother, Kate, her brother, the two other boys, and, well, there was no one left. Our regular fifth friend didn't join us because he was out of town. Yet here I was in the dark, far from alone. The Attic by Anthea West In the house I grew up in, we had a small roof attic that was never used. For as long as I can remember, I could hear a woman's voice coming from it, saying the same phrase every day. No one else seemed to hear her, though to my childish mind it seemed that no one else cared about the attic woman. The fear of this bodiless voice was mine and mine alone. However, over time... She just became a constant background noise in my life, something I eventually got used to. It wasn't until I was an adult did I realise that the voice was mine. The phrase? The same phrase uttered every day in my voice, creeping from the roof attic. Someday, you'll know why. The Exorcism Game by John Nisbet I'll never forget the day in primary school when we played the Exorcism Game and our lives changed forever. I don't even know how Becky got the idea. She must have seen The Exorcist on TV or something. Sophie was our victim. She was our friend, but not really. Sure, we let her play with us, but Becky didn't really like her, so she liked to punish Sophie every now and then. And me? I just went along with it, because at least it wasn't happening to me, right? God, I was such an asshole. Out, demon, I command you. Out, demon, I command you. Out, demon, I command you. We didn't even know what Leave we were doing. Even Becky didn't want fire. this. Oh, God. Demon. Becky had been chanting for about five minutes and throwing holy water at Sophie. Well, she said it was holy water. It could have been tap water. It could have been Dasani. And then Sophie just went limp. 
like she'd passed out. Oh, God, are you okay? I thought she was dead. We were both crying now, even Becky. She didn't know what she was doing. We were both just kids. How could we have known? We hadn't exercised a demon. We'd exercised Sophie. <laughs> Thank you for your service. I suppose you want a reward. Sophie, or whatever was now inside of her, just touched Becky and it was like her heart stopped instantly. Becky just collapsed. I was terrified. I didn't know what to do. And, of course, I got the blame for it, because hadn't we always been ordering Sophie around? Surely it couldn't have been her idea. No matter that Sophie acted strange now and smelled like burning hair. I don't know why she left me alone. Probably to make me suffer. After that, no one was allowed to play the exorcism game. Cadaver by author Jojo. A hurried plume of air rushed through pursed lips, bringing Heather back to the waking world. She stifled a gasp, like she had just broken above the waves. When attempting to take in her surroundings, she was met with darkness. All around her, there was nothing but the void. The only stimulus her senses received was the soft, silky fabric her fingers danced and twisted over. This gave her a better grasp of her orientation. The silk was under her like a sheet. A trace of panic was given birth to in the back of her thoughts. To confirm her suspicions, Heather lifted her arms up from her waist. Quickly, the back of her hands met with another layer of the same fabric. The panic grew. She was, as suspected, confined in every direction. Body and breath trembled in unison, creating a frantic and labored dance. Fingertips searched every nook and cranny, finding nothing but a sea of silk. Desperation setting in, she balled her fist and pounded the space above her. Light crept into the box with each strike, until she heard a click. With another vigorous strike, the lid lifted up. A bright and natural light enveloped her. Without a moment of hesitation, she swiftly sat up and filled her lungs. A heavy breath pulling in fresh air. She was pleased to find she wasn't in some crypt. It was a church that housed her. But how did I... She began to think when a soft groan caught her attention. How could she have forgotten? Was it the lack of air? Turning her gaze to the source of the noise, she observed a cluster of gaunt and decaying faces, all of which now had their attention on her. She remembered where she was and cursed herself. 
She wasn't mistaken for a corpse. She was hiding from them. This is Just a Movie by Mandy McHugh. Sneaking into the abandoned firehouse is Deb's idea. It'll be fun. Consider it your initiation. Into what, I want to ask. But instead I say, Sounds good. Because nobody likes a fucking coward. He passes me the flask. I take a swig and a second, and wait for full dark. Holding my breath up the old metal stairs, I hear a crackle rush of static, but I can't make out where it's coming from. We head down a hall toward a black curtain. What's this? Follow me. He pushes the folds away to reveal another staircase. And I do follow him. I've never been a leader. We descend into the darkness. The sizzling noise is louder and confusing. It's like wasps in my head, I say. We reach the landing. An old box TV hisses in the corner, casting shaky light into the small basement room. And then I see them giant animal heads on wooden stakes propped against the walls. Orange tiger, black bear, gray wolf, cardinal. Why are they here? Dev shrugs. Mascot storage? Spirits need to be warehoused somewhere. Oh. The buzzing accelerates. In front of us is a white, rectangular table. Six melted candles surround a smaller black rectangle. I can't remember the last time I saw one of these. I turn the blank VHS over in my hands. The sticker on the spine is faded but legible. This is just a movie. Dev plucks the cassette from my hand and rushes to the TV. What's on it? No clue. Last time there was a CD. I can barely hear him over the ocean rush of static. A CD? Yeah, labeled, this is just music. I tried listening when I got back to my car, but it was weird, man. Some strange noises, like all the air was being sucked out around me. I don't know. My nose started bleeding, and I threw that shit out the window. There's a click as the VHS connects. The screen snaps to black, and a white circle appears. You're messing with me, right? Put something in that flask? Nah, man. 
Just whiskey. Dev sits on the floor, arms wrapped loosely around his legs. The circle on the screen grows a mouth. It smiles. I smile back. The white noise cuts out. The Cardinal will do. I take the bird in my hands and yank it from its picket. Silky feathers, needle sharp beak. Yes, it will do. I wear it like a crown, wriggling it over my face until my breath is pinched in the foul husk. Dev reaches out, almost touching the white on the screen. Blood streaks from his nose. The smile widens. I grip the stake. Let it hover over his kidney where I know I won't find resistance. And the static begins again. The Danger of Knowing by Casey Banks Come on, Teach, give us something cool today. They were restless today, he thought. Why not throw them a bone? Okay, fine. Who here knows who Quentin Xavier is? They rustled and looked around, stumped. He wasn't surprised. A geneticist from the early 2000s? The voice was small and mouse-like, and it took him a minute to find its source. She was small and meek-looking, He had never noticed her before. Very good, Miss... Trotter. Miss Trotter. He smiled. Can you tell the class what Dr. Xavier was famous for? The girl almost seemed to melt back into herself as the class turned to stare in her direction. QX137. He repeated it louder for those who couldn't hear. QX137. Which is? A gene found in only 1% of the population, found mainly in the blood of... Serial killers! The crowded room quickly livened up. That's right. Through extensive studies and testing on current and long-dead killers, Dr. Xavier found that in all tested, what was later dubbed QX137 was present and thus gave way to groundbreaking work which now allows us to test and monitor those who possess QX-137. But can you tell me the more common name for this particular gene? He turned back to the girl. The evil gene. The evil gene. A one in a million shot to be a killer. How's that for cool? (laughs) He chuckled as he looked out over the class. Who knows? Maybe even one of you have it. He raised his hands and wiggled his fingers in a cheesy attempt to look spooky. As the class laughed with a chorus of oohs, Miss Trotter slid further down into her seat, her fingers dancing lightly over the blood-stained knife in her jacket pocket. She whispered to herself, unnoticed by everyone around her. Maybe. 
A crooked grin spread across her face. My child's first words were not mama. By Mr. Michael Squid. Charlie was born a tiny pink, wiggling ball of screams. He was a month premature, dashing out as if he had places to go and people to see. My wife joked that he had the voice of an angel. His harsh screams could strip paint from walls and fine hairs from inner ears. Beth and I took turns so that one of us could actually get some sleep in the basement on occasion. As the grueling months passed and bags formed under our eyes, we realized we were in it for the longer haul than we'd imagined. At six months, Charlie was still as loud as ever, though a bit more charming with that shiny wave of black hair. He seemed to calm a bit when I'd read to him, so we ended up reading entire novels to our little vocal angel. He hated breastfeeding and preferred the bottle, something we both found odd but accepted after speaking to our pediatrician. Charlie was otherwise healthy, and we were advised to just hang in there through his shrill fits. Advil and noise-blocking earmuffs became regularly used tools in our arsenal. When Charlie reached 12 months, we grew concerned and took him to an infant psychiatrist to cover the bases. We had ruled out anything physical, but his streaming wide eyes and drooling, screeching mouth seemed to harbor something deeper that we felt we needed to explore. The doc mentioned emotional regulation disorder as a possible cause, and suggested we perform certain playful interactions, imitating Charlie until he recognized our mimicking behavior and played along in sucking a thumb or laughing. We continued to try, but nothing worked. It wasn't until a few months after his birthday when Beth was in the bathroom that Charlie finally spoke. I'd been playfully crawling on the carpet to copy his behavior when Charlie sat up and stared at me with trembling, glossy eyes pointing a nubby little finger to the closed bathroom door. A tickle of unease danced across the hairs on my neck as he scrunched his face into a tearful pout and spoke his first words. Mama. He shook his tiny head no as tears streamed down his tender pink face. I swung my head over to the bathroom, staring at the silhouette of Beth standing strangely in the doorway with her hair up. I then noticed the stapled seam reflected in the mirror that ran down the back of her head for the very first time. My Husband Has a Bad Habit of Leaving the Door Unlocked by Jessica Charlet. My husband has a bad habit of leaving the door unlocked. We could be axed to bits, I say. My husband laughs and tells me I'm overreacting. What about Tommy? I ask. Think of our son. Don't worry, my husband says. We're safe, 
He's tied up tight out there. I shift my weight from foot to foot and look outside the window. The shed door shudders in the breeze, hitting the frame with a gentle bang. My husband has a bad habit of leaving the door unlocked. Generous Donation by Mata Hagas Burridge. I'm writing this to you from a hospital, and I hope I can send it before anyone finds me. It's a really nice hospital, very plush, very secure, and you might even recognize the names of a few of the people that are supposedly here in rehab. My wife checked me in two months ago, I think. It's hard to keep track of time. I've seen the paperwork, and her handwriting is lovely. She gave extensive stories about my gradual decline, pages of them all neatly written. It's a tragic read, and you can see where an occasional tear has dripped into the ink as she wrote it all. My story is pretty familiar these days, and she writes it about me so clearly. Stress leading to depression, depression to isolation, isolation to dark thoughts. You know the rest. My wife is paid up front for my stay. I don't know for how long exactly, but the hospital says that I needn't worry. I could take the rest of my life to get better if I wanted to. It's all been covered. She's clearly been very generous. They're semi-joking about naming a wing after her, and always telling me I should be grateful. The thing is, I don't have a wife. I've never married. Someone very rich is playing a terrible joke, but no one here believes me. Please, send help. Room Service by Greg R. Coleman I had just entered my hotel room setting my keys down on the table next to the bed, when I heard a loud noise coming from the bathroom. I turned to look as the bathroom door flew open, and a tall, older man appeared, wearing a robe and drying his silver hair off with one of the hotel's complimentary towels. What are you doing in my room? Excuse me, this is my room. I have a key. This is my room. I relaxed slightly as I realized the man didn't appear to be there to rob or harm me in any way. It did seem like he honestly believed that this was his room. Well, that can't be right. Let me call the front desk and see if they can help sort this out for us. 
I watched as the man picked up the hotel room phone and began to dial the front desk. I listened in as he hastily explained the situation and then lowered the receiver back down. Well, what did they say? They said they'll send someone up to deal with the situation. A moment later, three slow and heavy knocks echoed from the hotel room door. That was fast. I watched as the man made his way to the door and peered out through the small eye hole that displayed the hallway on the other side. A muffled voice came from beyond the door. Room service. At that moment, I recall hearing the man gasp loudly, (gasps) followed by a loud cracking noise like the sound of splintering wood. I didn't know exactly where the sound had come from, That was, until the man began to slowly stumble backwards away from the door. Then I saw it. A small crack now appeared in the wooden door right where the eye hole had been only moments ago. I watched as the man then slowly turned around to face me. I recoiled in horror as my eyes fixed upon the long, sharp blade that was now protruding from the man's left eye as he stumbled backwards onto the floor, twitching violently as endless streams of red began to flow out from the now empty socket. Before I could move, before I could scream, before I could do anything, I awoke in my bed. Covered in sweat, I let out a loud sigh. It took me a minute before I could fully begin to relax, relieved that the horrific act I had just witnessed was only a nightmare. That was until I heard three slow and heavy knocks at my closed bedroom door. The same eerie, muffled voice from my dream then echoed back to me from just beyond my darkened room. Room service. There's nothing wrong with my baby by Mr. Michael Squid. I pushed the pram with confidence, ignoring the gawking faces of the cowering people I pass on the sidewalk. They've been doing it for a week now, staring at her with wide, terrified eyes. Their faces turn away, green with nausea, as they shout in horror. They stare and point shivering fingers, covering their mouths in shock at the sight of her. They scream and shield their eyes as they run. But there's nothing wrong with my baby. I know what you might be thinking. That I'm delusional that I'm caring for some hideous, tentacled creature flailing about inside my baby carriage. Some undulating, larval monstrosity under a cotton blanket, oozing liquids and chuffing out strange sounds. 
Maybe you're picturing spidery legs extending outward from the swaddling cloth as sharp mandibles chew the raw meat I feed to her. But you're wrong. Perhaps you think my baby's dead. A stillborn I refuse to bury. That I'm insane from my grief, unable to accept the feeling of loss that awaits if I could only see her lifeless body for what it is. Maybe you think I dug her up? Blue skin, bloated and teeming with maggots. Maybe you think I'm simply pushing around a carriage of tiny bones I've collected, bleached white from the sun. But you're mistaken. There's nothing wrong with my baby. Mia's a healthy eight pounds six ounces, with a golden swirl of blonde hair atop her small pink head. She has sparkling brown eyes and a beautiful toothless smile that warms my heart. She is a perfectly normal newborn, but the infected all see her differently after the virus spreads to their brain. I don't know how much time I've got, but I'm showing the first symptoms, and I'm scared. I'm scared of what I'll see when I look at her after it infects my brain. I'm scared of what will happen to her when I can't help but run away too. Her First Day by William Stewart His heart breaks all over again. He shoulders his rifle and his pack, snatches up his keys, and chambers around in the pistol, just in case. The knocking is weaker this time, and he holds back tears because he knows what that means. Shaking it off, he tells himself there will be time to mourn later. Always more time always later, but for now he has to focus. An old calendar hangs on the wall next to the door. The actual month and year long past, it is now marked with X's and O's of a dozen different colors. He checks the most recent series of blue X's, 17 days, longer than the last time by nearly a week. Maybe it would be over soon. The knocking comes again and he swallows the lump in his throat. A coil of rope hangs on a hook under the calendar. Pistol at the ready, he grabs the rope, then throws the bolt and opens the door. Standing on the threshold is a tiny figure, not even three feet tall. Tendrils of baby-fine blonde hair hang limply from the peeling skin on its head. It wears a dirty nightgown and weaves uncertainly on tiny feet, the bottoms of which the flesh has worn off completely leaving only ragged flaps of dried skin across the bony tops. It makes no sound, save a barely audible wheeze and the creaking of joints as it moves towards him. Careful, he tells himself. Even this far gone, they're still dangerous. He watches as it takes tiny, labored steps across his porch.
The plague had taken his wife and son in the first wave, only days apart from each other. Fortunately, they'd been buried before the resurrection began. He thought of them often, somewhere beneath tons of earth, writhing, eternally trying but unable to break free from their steel and wooden boxes in their unmarked graves. Their headstones hadn't arrived before the world ended. He and his four-year-old daughter had managed to survive. The plague killed everyone around, but not everyone had been reanimated. And the resurrected were easy enough to dispatch, as long as you didn't get surrounded. He'd done okay with Penny by his side. In the weeks and months that followed, he'd managed to make it back to the house they'd lived in, before the evacuations and the chaos had sent them away. He cleared the area of zombies and could find no signs of any other survivors. They set about living as normally as they could. He began teaching her to read and write. They played games and went for walks. She chased bubbles in the front yard while he watched with his rifle on his lap. It wasn't ideal, but it was as good as he could make it under the circumstances. Then she got the fever. He did the best he could to play through his grief while she was alive. He sat for hours by her bed and sang every song he knew to make her happy. He only left her side when it was absolutely necessary, and even then rushed back to her, lest the inevitable happen while he was gone. Then, one morning, she just slipped away. He'd laid on the floor wailing for hours. What would he do now? She was the only reason he kept going. And now, there she lay with her blankie and her bear, and she didn't need him anymore. He winced at each step she took toward him, her arms slowly raised as if to give him a hug. He waited for a moment before uncoiling the rope and wrapping it around her tiny frame. She barely registered her capture, tiny teeth clacking together as tiny jaws tried to bite him. He cinched the rope at her waist with one hand, picked her up like a suitcase, and walked her out to the car. He set her in the back, next to the baby seat he'd strapped her in so many times before, avoiding her teeth as he clicked the seatbelt into place. He then got into the driver's seat and started the car. He watched her in the rearview mirror and chided himself for his lack of courage. The kind thing, the merciful thing to do would be to put her out of her misery, snap her neck, or put her down with a shot from his 45. But he could not. He'd come to terms with that fact long ago. No, he would just take her back and hope this time would be the last, although he knew it wouldn't be. He remembered the first time he'd done this, right after the change. He had laid her in bed as if asleep for a few hours before she began to stir. At first, he had a glimmer of hope that she'd just been sleeping, but the retching, hissing sound she made let him know she'd only turned. He tried then, putting the gun to her head and willing himself to pull the trigger to end it for her. But of course, he failed. He'd avoided her attacks while trying to figure out what to do. Then it occurred to him to just let her go, to take her out and let her, it, fend for itself, some other survivor or marauder would deal with it, and he could go on without knowing he'd put a bullet in his daughter's brain. 
He'd wrapped her up in a bedsheet and put her in the car. One of their last conversations playing over and over again in his head. Daddy? Yes? When I grow up, I want to go to school. Go to school? That's what I said. Go to school. Well, honey, I don't think they have schools anymore. Ben go to school? Yes, he sure did. So I can go to school too. <laughs> A tear rolled down his cheek as he remembered her folding her arms in an exaggerated sulk. She would never understand, but here they were, on the playground of what would have been her elementary school. He'd unwrapped her from the sheet then. He untied the rope now. He stood away from her for a moment, then said, Have a good day at school, sweetheart. Daddy loves you and will be waiting for you when you get home. The Other Side of the Tunnel by Anderson West My friends and I have always enjoyed smoking weed and going to different places while riding the high. Me, Bobby, and Mike were at Alex's house with our other friend, Willie Bonka. If the name didn't give it away, this particular friend was a two-foot-tall bong that belonged to Alex and was impregnated with Northern Lights. We passed him around until happiness ensued. Where to tonight, gentlemen? Alex looked up thoughtfully. I've always wanted to walk the railroad behind my house. It's a clear night with a full moon. Bobby melted into the couch. Couldn't it be dangerous? Giant contraptions called trains... There hasn't been a train on those tracks in over a decade. They were deemed to be used for emergency purposes by whoever the fuck decides that shit. I'm up for it if we can go to Taco Bell after. Alex looked at Mike like he was an idiot. (sighs) Of course we're getting Taco Bell after. We took to the tracks that were right behind Alex's backyard. It was indeed a gorgeous night as Alex had anticipated. I was enjoying the hell out of it, but Bobby was drudging like a Romero zombie and Mike was complaining about his Chuck Taylors being a poor choice of footwear for this journey. There's a tunnel up ahead. Mike looked pleased. Oh no. Guess we'll have to turn back and go to Taco Bell. Alex pulled out his phone. Who the hell is without a flashlight these days? Fuck. Alex gave Mike a cross look. Yeah. Fuck, yeah, we're going in that tunnel. At its opening, the usually narrow tunnel regurgitated a chill and musty smell associated with long-time dankness. I think this is a panic attack waiting to happen. I'll lead. If any homicidal drifters are in there, they'll shank me first. 
homicidal drifters? I put my hand on Bobby's shoulder. I'll go second. Double the chances of your cowardly escape. While inside, Alex abruptly stopped. We were in the center of the tunnel, and it was too narrow to let the train pass us by. Just fucking run! I ran with the train's light licking my back. I could see the end and jumped off the hillside next to Alex. A Vanta Black train instantly emerged from the tunnel. Never seen anything so black. Alex and I watched the monstrosity. Not only was it curiously dark, it had passengers. Sad-looking people gawked out of the window with lost eyes. When the last car passed, I was dumbstruck. Bobby and Mike were among the miserable on that train. I walked up the hill and watched the train slowly leave. I turned to see the tracks stained in red, and a blue Chuck Taylor shoe rested on its side. Gaslighted by Jessica Charlet. I've been away for only a few weeks. But the life that was once mine is gone. This is my house. That's my family in the photographs. There's the creaky stair. The small dent in the wall from a stray soccer ball. The brass doorknobs I replaced the old ones with. The pink carpet I hate. The brown hair of my wife. The scent of almonds I know so well drifting from her skin. The horror in her face as she rolled over and saw me will haunt me forever. The cops came and I tried to explain to them that it's my home. That that woman is my wife. That those girls are mine. That that man, the one with my hair, my teeth, he's the one who should be arrested. The intruder. The imposter. My youngest calls him daddy and I feel rage boiling inside me, rising up like a hot current. They'd recognize me if he hadn't mutilated me. They'd remember me if he hadn't taken a razor to my face, morphing me into a monster. They'd know my voice if he hadn't ripped out my tongue. I regret not telling my wife about him. You're supposed to tell your spouse everything, but I was ashamed. When my phone rang and I saw it was the sanitarium, I ignored it. I didn't listen to the voicemail until I was alone. I didn't know I was in danger until he was already behind me. As a stabbing pain entered my neck, I heard the nurse explain that my twin brother had escaped. The 
last 911 call from Friendship, Wisconsin by Easy Morgan. My brother went out for coffee one day and came back as someone else. I, I know it isn't him. I see his eyes and I don't recognize the person inside. Something has been replacing all the people. Friendship. With replicas. Callan, it sounds like you might be having a mental breakdown. I'm not breaking down, Betty. Betty? I am saner than I have ever been. I have been inside my house for a month now. I haven't seen another human in over a month, but my food has run out. And they keep knocking on my door, threatening to come in. They want to replace me, Betty. To be honest, I'm tired. No one believes me. I had to cover all my windows, and I miss sunlight. Do you see the sunlight, Betty? It's after midnight. <laughs> Joke's on me, then. Can you tell me your address? I'll send someone over to help you. I'm gonna die in here, Betty. You don't have to. You can unlock your door and get help. You know, Callan, I'm not supposed to say this, but I have mental health problems too. I see a therapist and it really helps. I bet if you just gave it a chance, you'd be- I'm not crazy. Something is replacing the entire town and I can't stop it. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have raised my voice. You're all I have, Betty. I bet you have green eyes. Lucky guess. I wish I could have met the real you before this happened. I am the real me, Callan. Are you the real you? <laughs> I don't know. I've been, I've been having dreams where figures come into my room. They take hair and skin. I wake up with bruises. What if, what if I'm a replica? Then let us help you. Do you hear the sirens? Yes. They sound close. They are there to help you. Will you come, Betty? Will you come help me? Even if I could, I'm allergic to cats. I never said I had a cat. Yes, you did. You told me the only living thing you've seen is your cat. No, I didn't. You're lying, Betty. You're lying. Open the door, Callan. You're not real. You're not real. Open the door. No, I would rather die in here than die. Betty?
First Date by Tor Anders Ulven. I've never done anything like this before. Never sat down with a man opposite in this capacity. The anticipation is real and tangible. He keeps looking over at me, and I don't know how to react. Should I smile? Would a smile be too forward? Should I just look back, meet his gaze? Then what? Where does it go from there? Should I introduce myself? Maybe he's waiting for me to break the ice. Should I do something with my hands? They're just sitting here, limp and useless. My legs are aching. Maybe I should shift my position. Would that be too weird? Do people do that? I really shouldn't. It might give off the wrong signal. Do I do anything with my eyebrows, though? That's something I've definitely seen people do. Like, raise one, maybe? Or both? Oh no, he's still looking at me. I don't know what to do. Hello. Oh no, how do I respond to that? Can I reply with a simple hello back? Or should I elaborate? Maybe I don't need to say anything? Maybe it would be enough to just smile or wave my hand. A gesture somehow. I have to do something. I can't just sit here staring at him. That would be too weird. A combination of facial expression, bodily pose, and an alluring greeting would be perfect. But if I mess it up, it could quite possibly have the opposite effect of that I want. Hi. That didn't seem right at all. I can tell by the way the expression on his face changes that I screwed up somehow. That I misread the signals. Damn it, why do I always do this? Why can't I just be normal? Why can't I instinctively react to these social cues? Do you want something to drink? I was dreading this question. I am quite thirsty, but the information that could be extracted from the essence of the answer is theoretically limitless. Hot or cold? Lukewarm? Size, shape, color, fizzled? People can't really fathom how much a single choice like this can reveal about a person. I want him to think I am interesting, sophisticated, mysterious, elegant. A person who has seen it all, yet still willing to explore, grow, and evolve. Someone that can challenge and question, capable of both receiving and giving criticism. Water. Was that right? It's neutral, healthy even, but could it be defined as boring, dull, lacking in imagination? Did I just blow it? Was this it? I can't move. I'm physically unable to move. It's just too much to process, too much to read into. I desperately try to identify the expression on his face. It seems serious, yet intrigued. Cold, yet inquisitive. Maybe there's still hope? Let's talk about the bodies we found in your freezer. Old Rex's Barn by Anderson West A kid can't resist where they're told they shouldn't go. Growing up, I frequently played on the gravel road near our house. 
Daddy told me time and again to stay away from the dilapidated barn down yonder of that road. He claimed it was a haven for snakes, spiders, splinters, tetanus, and all other ungodly things. It would take more than creepy crawlies and a case of lockjaw to eliminate my intrigue. Daddy just made it more enticing. One morning I was walking along that gravel road and I saw a boy around my age I'd never seen before. Didn't recognize him from school, but I did the polite thing and waved at him. He waved back and added a sly smile to his greeting. He motioned for me to follow him. I didn't get a lot of opportunities to play with kids where I lived, so I followed him around a bend in the road. There was no sign of my new friend, but that rotten barn stood straight ahead. For once, its doors were wide open. That was definitely interesting, but I was more concerned where the boy ran off to. Then I heard him call from the barn. How'd you get all the way down there so fast, buddy? I was thinking the situation was more funny than extremely odd. The boy peeked his head out from behind the barn's doorframe. Come on. I was making my way toward the barn when I saw more kids' heads peeking through the doorway. I halted. They were all smiling and giggling at me. I shook my head and didn't take a single step forward. That barn looked, I don't know, hungry is about the best way to describe it, with its black mouth gaped wide open. The kids' smiles turned to frowns, and the jovial giggles were replaced with hateful screams. And then one by one, their heads fell to the ground and rolled to the center of the barn's doorway, making a sinister little pile. The door slammed closed and open several times. It was as if the damn thing was angry. I couldn't run away fast enough. When I got home, I was out of breath, and I saw my daddy on the porch smoking his pipe. He took one look at me and smirked. I could tell he knew where I'd been. Ungodly things in that barn. You saw it, didn't you? I nodded. That was old Rex's property. And he loved children in the worst possible way before he hanged himself. Why didn't you tell me? I'm telling you now. So we can never talk about it again. I didn't push it. But I had a granddaddy I never met named Rex. I just know he hanged himself as well. And daddy never talked about him. Two spots by John Foster. 
for some reason, I woke up at 3.41 in the morning. I know this because I was awake. And my clock was so rudely burning my retinas with the only light in the room. I grumbled in protest and turned to look into the darkness of my room in hopes of falling back asleep. Except my room wasn't all dark. Two perfect circles of yellow light were on my dresser about an inch apart from each other. I say on, but really they were about two feet above the actual surface. I was confused, yes, scared, definitely, but I was also very curious about it. I knew it wasn't my clock, that much was obvious. I lay there pondering what the lights meant and where they came from. I'd say about five minutes passed before I gave into the inquisitive side of my brain and decided to investigate further. But when I sat up, they disappeared. That was also the moment I remembered there was a mirror above my dresser. I froze as I heard the creaking of my bed springs behind me. Mrs. Sullivan's by Mr. Michael Squid. Olivia's small voice called out from the bedroom door. Mrs. Sullivan's won't stop staring at me. Daddy's sleeping. I turned over to face the open door. Olivia's big brown eyes gleamed in the moonlight like a startled fawn's as she cowered behind the frame. She rarely woke us up this time of night, but it happened on occasion, especially after watching too much TV. My wife groaned and buried her head in her pillow. Oh. It's your turn. With a resigned sigh, I sat up on the edge of my bed and pulled a t-shirt on over my head. I stood up and walked over to my four-year-old daughter. What's the problem, sweetie? Mrs. Sullivan won't stop looking in my room. Olivia tugged my middle finger with her tiny hand. She led me into her room and over to her window which overlooks the neighboring house. Mrs. Sullivan. I corrected. He's sleeping, and so should... I froze. My neck hairs bristled at the sight of her. Mrs. Sullivan was staring directly in at me from her bedroom window across the dividing lawn. Her gray hair tumbled down her slumped shoulders, and her wrinkled face was twisted with a hideous smile. Her bared teeth chattered together, and her eyes stared wide and wild. I reached up reflexively, unrolling the blind to cover the window and blot out the sight of Mrs. Sullivan's unsettling grin. The poor woman likely needed to be placed in a home, I realized. 
Dumpling, Mrs. Sullivan is getting old. Let's get back to bed so the rest of us can get a good night's rest, okay? Olivia nodded, climbed into her bed and wriggled under the covers. I brushed her bangs aside and gave her a kiss on her forehead after tucking her in. Daddy will check on her after work to make sure she's okay. Good night, sweetie. I smiled in at her from the dark hallway. What about the other ones? I felt hot, damp breath on my neck. As the chattering of teeth grew from the shadows of the hall. The First Message by David Alt. No one would have believed in the early years of the 21st century that human affairs were being watched by intelligences that inhabited the timeless worlds of space. No one could have dreamed they were being scrutinized as someone with a magnifying glass studies creatures that build and dig in the ground before them. At midnight on the 12th of August, the first missile approached Earth. It was thought to be an ordinary falling star, but the next day there was a small crater in the middle of Horsell Common. A cylinder 30 millimetres across, glowing hot. Suddenly it cracked in half and an odour emanated forth. It seems totally incredible now that everyone spent that evening as though it were just like any other. Sparse crowds gathered online, watching the live stream, but it still wasn't anything much in the public consciousness. The greater crowds gathered underneath the common, hypnotized by the cracking of the cylinder, receiving the message that had been given. Within 24 hours, the message had spread. The families, the colonies, worked together to spread the message and follow its contents. The fighting machines, the buildings, everything that the interlopers had constructed soon disappeared into the ground, their bodies sliced apart by thousands of pincered mouths. Within 48 hours, the island was restored to its natural state, and the pheromone had been blown on the winds to the main landmass to the east and south. The waiting colony listened and understood, and they too began to dig, dig and destroy, then pass the message on. Within 96 hours, the interlopers and their fighting machines were no more. They were dead, slain after all man's own devices had failed by the humblest families on the earth, the ants. Humanity was so conceited that it expected the first message from the stars to be for them. Instead, the first message proved to be its downfall.
A bell rings in the night. A clear tone repeated twice and then growing to a frantic clanging. The cemetery guard smiles and does nothing. Suddenly Shocking, Volume 13, was produced by Jeff Clement and Jesse Cornett for the No Sleep Podcast. Featuring performances by Kyle Akers, David Alt, Matthew Bradford, Alexis Bristow, Jeff Clement, James Cleveland, Jesse Cornett, Andy Cresswell, David Cummings, Mike Delgadio, Kristen DiMercurio, Nicole Doolin, Nicole Goodnight, L.A. Hirschman, Atticus Jackson, Peter Lewis, Aaron Lillis, Jessica McAvoy, Danielle McRae, Mary Murphy, Sarah Olivia, Graham Rowett, Erica Sanderson, Penny Scott Andrews, Andrew Tate, Sarah Thomas, Wafia White, Mick Wingert, and Dan Zapula. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Visit thenosleeppodcast.com to learn more about our show and our season pass memberships. Thank you for listening to Suddenly Shocking, Volume 13. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.